This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from Cities Week. It's your club and this is your show. Well, there's nothing quite like the drama of a last-minute winner, is there? You'd think as Manchester City fans we'd be used to it by now, but they do still catch you unawares when they come along, and there's no better way to take all three points. You could see that in the celebrations in the away dugout last Saturday evening. On today's Blue Moon podcast, we'll take a look back over that ding-dong battle at Newcastle, where the two teams decided to play out their own Goal of the Month competition in real time. We'll be focusing on the impact of Kevin De Bruyne's cameo and the quality of touch and finish from youngster Oscar Bob. That doesn't mean we'll be ignoring the other two talking points as well. With no game to preview, there's time to get stuck into some other stuff around City too. The Premier League's Chief Executive Richard Masters has appeared before the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee. I can't give any details on Man City beyond saying that a date has been set. Not much there, but we know the case is progressing. And the former City manager Sven-Goran Eriksson has revealed that he's been diagnosed with terminal cancer. We make no apologies for setting aside a good chunk of time to revisit our interview with him in 2011 and to discuss his season in charge of the club. All of that on on the way, I'm David Mooney, and to help me digest everything this week, I'm joined by, from statcity.co.uk, Adam Carter. Hello. And the BBC's football correspondent, John Murray. Hello. Hello. Um, John, good to have you back. Um, Adam, um, I, I, I thought of you this week as uh, City were, were banging in quality goal after quality goal. <laughs> me and you, we, we like to talk about uh, some of the the less good. So I, I, <laughs> I get the way around and just ask you, what's the shittest goal you <laughs> So there's a fair few to go at, but I think I'll go fairly recent. Uh, you can have Grealish's first City goal, where it's just hit his thigh and gone in against <laughs> Norwich. Or you can have Dean Michaelis against Fulham, where he's just stood at the back post and it's almost just hit him was that, and gone in to make it 5-0. Was that the one he celebrated before it had gone in, though? Yes, exactly. Because, he just kind of hooked his leg behind it. <laughs> because that, that makes it iconic. I can not I can never remember if it yeah. was that one or the West Brom one, but they were they're both similar where he scuffed it over yeah. the line. Yeah. And, the, and then another one that immediately came to mind, but it was far too important to be considered rubbish, was Aguero's goal against Burnley in the 2019 running, which came after an almighty goal-mouth scramble which was so scrappy. But it barely went in, yeah. <laughs> it barely went in, but it was too important to be able to actually put that on the list. But I've had to go for Dean McKayley's if I'm pushed. Yeah, my my favourites uh, from Aguero's, from uh, Guardiola's first season, it is Aguero at Burnley. Um, mm. There's there's an almighty scramble in the box, but two Burnley players kick each other and, and go flying. Uh, Torre <laughs> basically grabs the ball and falls on top of it, claiming a penalty. Uh, Fernandinho <laughs> kicks the ball into Sane, it almost remember, overruns yeah. it at the back post. And then they scuff it across and it just hits a Aguero and goes in. Our mate, our mate John Smith asked Guardiola in the press conference afterwards um, about the quality of the goals, and, and Guardiola just goes, "Beautiful goals, beautiful <laughs> goals." Uh, John, is there, is there any any good any? We've, we've seen good City goals this week. Any any bad ones you can remember? I'd say the ones that that always um, really irk me are, as a commentator, are the goals that are important goals that aren't good goals. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> or, 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 if, or if they're not clear, or if it's a big deflection, or, you know, the, the ones you were describing, you know, when it's a, go- when it's a goal mouse scramble, it hits two or three people <laughs> and then rolls over the line. You're not sure who scored it. You, yeah. uh, you know, it might be an own goal, might not. And, of course, if it's an important goal, if it's a cup final winning goal, then you want to be able to describe it in the way that you, you know, 
in the way that you would want to. So um, you know, I've, I've I've had a few I've had a few of those over the years, but also I've had plenty of ones where the the one that wins it is actually a very very good goal as well. So. Yeah. Swings and roundabouts. Yeah, uh, we're going to get into all of that now. Uh, 2024 is upon us, which means a packed schedule of FA Cup, AFCON and, of course, Premier League action. Beat the January Blues and watch every game with the atmosphere it deserves down at your local Green King Sports pub. Don't settle for a dodgy stream. If it's on the telly, it's on at your local Green King across their huge HD screens. If you download the Green King Sports app, you also receive 10% off every single drink whenever there's a game on. Their venues offer a range of low and no alcohol options, so dry January doesn't mean you have to settle for a worse sports watching experience. Um, John, let's start then with uh, City against City at Newcastle. Um, we we said five wonderful goals. Uh, what was it like to commentate on? I know you were doing the commentary. What was uh, what was it like to be there? Yeah, super game. Um, Pat Nevin was with me, and, and even by half time, Pat was saying that he thought it was possibly the best game that he's seen this season. Um, and certainly, I, th- I think the first half was right up there. I think the second half didn't quite hit the heights, but it was still, you know, an excellent half of football. Um, and I thought for that spell in the uh, in the first half was probably 20, 20 minutes or so, maybe a little bit more than that. I thought the City performance was right up there with the uh, the Real Madrid performance last mm. season I thought they were absolutely outstanding and and how they you know if they'd got if they'd scored the second goal in that spell I, you know I don't think I don't think there would have been any coming back for that for Newcastle yeah um we said five wonderful goals Adam um how did you feel watching it because obviously you concede a great goal and you're going well okay I'm annoyed about that but it was still a good goal <laughs> yeah to to put a bit of context to it so obviously Edison goes off in the first eight minutes or so um, we then we then go one nil up, and I overconfidently tweeted. I put no Edison, no Stones, uh, <laughs> no De Bruyne, no Haaland, like no problem one nil because I just thought what a tough task to go to St James's Park without arguably our best person, our best player in each position, and to go one nil up. So I got overly confident. Then, as such, games against New- Newcastle can be where they turn into a basketball game. We get hit with two absolute pearlers at the other end where we just decided we didn't want to defend for that period of time. And then it was a case of, here we go again. It's Everton. It's the Everton first half again. It's the Spurs game. It's the Palace game. You know, it, so where we, we were playing okay, but not getting our just rewards for it. So I, in the moment, I was, here we go again. But then knowing that we'd created chances, we were continuing to create chances and knowing that we did have De Bruyne on the bench, I was less stressed as I was in those other games that I've just alluded to. Yeah. John, when you when you watch it kind of become that basketball game towards the end of the of the first half. I mean for the for the neutrals like yourself, it's wonderful. Uh for me and Adam we start having kittens <laughs> that city aren't controlling it. So uh, what what was what was it like towards the, the uh, as half time was coming? Was it was the I mean the, it sounded like the stadium was up as well and that they there was a real feeling that Newcastle were were taking the game to City. I think at the moment there aren't too many better places to watch a match like that than St mm. James's Park. It's a it's a it's a great place to be at the moment. You know, as as, as some as, as football grounds happen to be when teams are going through the the type of times that Newcastle fans are enjoying now, and 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 it, it's one of the most positive places that you go to. You know, so many football grounds there will be moaning and groaning. And, and I think that there's a tiny element of that creeping in with Newcastle, a tiny element. And, you know, I think possibly those who are uh, beginning to get impatient for the, the successes, you know, it's, it's, there is that delicious looking forward to when it will arrive, which it surely will for Newcastle. But, you know, that, that can't go on forever. And, you, you know, you, you will remember those yeah. times very well. Been, been there, done that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
exactly. Yeah. But you know, it's a, it. Um, you, but gen, but but it, it, in the main, the the posi- positivity at, at Newcastle is really infectious when when you go there at the moment, and you know, in, there's very very little criticism. For for Eddie Howe, you know the 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 crowd in the main are, are hugely behind him, even though they've now lost what is it four four in a row Newcastle in the Premier League and and they've lost 10, 10 Premier League matches this season. Crazy, yeah. And Adam, I mean, you you think of um, of kind of City's record as well. It, like previously before this season, being behind at half time away from home was a death knell for City. Like they yeah. they didn't come back, and it's all they're doing <laughs> this season. Pretty much every away game, they're behind at half time. They go on. And win it and kind of combine that into Newcastle's recent form you're kind of thinking well obviously this one's going to be the one where it doesn't happen because Newcastle are desperate for a win City City are are still making things difficult for themselves by trailing at half time away from home Um, and they just got they just got on with it and did it yeah, that that was definitely the case um, at my th- of my thought thought process at half time. I was like, "Here we go again." Uh, the the stat used to st- scroll back to the early nineties in terms of going behind at half time. Now we've done it three in a row, certainly away from home in the Premier League. So it shows that we've turned that corner now. I'm I'm declaring it se- securely turned. So <laughs> when that comes back to bite me next week, or when we when we play Tottenham, uh, you you can replay that clip. But ah, but that's, uh, that's in the FA Cup, you see. Yeah, exactly. So we'll, we'll, we'll let that one slide. So yeah, if, when, when we're down away at the, in the Premier League, don't worry because we've turned that corner now. And I think we couldn't rely on that in, in the earlier part of the season. When things were going tough, we kind of didn't have an answer. Uh, whereas now we've got a big ginger answer on the bench. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about some of the individual players then. And it's it's a weird one, this, John, because um, when, when I was sitting down to think about this show before the game, um, I didn't expect to be uh, leading on uh, a youngster who's barely played for the club. But when you look at uh, the impact that Oscar Bob made when he came on, and um, the fact that Guardiola turned to him in in, in a situation where he needed the game to to win it, um, he really trusts him, doesn't he? Yeah, and uh, that's the that is the the first and foremost indicator, isn't it? With Pep Guardiola, you, you know, if he if he trusts you, he plays you. You know, if he really backs you, you get in the team and you get on the field for uh, for Manchester City, as has been the case with Rico Lewis, hasn't it? Regardless of mm. the age, so you know, as you will have heard, and as I have, you know, really talk up players. But um, you know, I've heard that with Foden, I've heard the same sort of language used for Rico Lewis, and now you hear the same sort of language used for Oscar Bob. So uh, you know, if he stays fit and healthy, it looks as though there is a, a great career ahead of him. Yeah, tell me uh, your reaction uh, when he, he when he basically sidestepped Dubravka. What like what was it like in the in the ground and, and on commentary? Because that that moment, <laughs> I, I tell you, that moment when I was watching on TV, I was screaming, "Go down, go down! You've been fouled, go down!" And uh, he didn't. He stayed on his feet, took it round, and popped it into the net. It was a wonderful goal. Yeah, just the speed of footwork, really. I mean, it was uh, it was something else. And I mean, Newcastle. You talk about the late goals with uh, with Manchester City. With Newcastle, they've been dealt so many blows this season. Late goals against them, or, or decisions against them, like the Paris Saint Germain penalty um, in in uh, in France when when that match finished one one. You know, the, the Carabao Cup tie against Chelsea when they were one nil up in the second minute of of added time and end up going out of the competition on penalties. Um, you know, late goals. AC Milan as well in in their matches, you know, they, and so there was a there were, in the home sections there was a general feeling of here we go again, really. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, Adam, when you were watching it, um, well, mm. what? How did you? How did you react? Because I, I assume you weren't there, so I assume you fell off yeah. your sofa like I did. Yeah, exactly. I was just because of the way the game had gone, and because, uh, and I will speak about De Bruyne in a bit. He'd got his equaliser. I was just almost right. Tough game with all those players missing, with all the circumstances that we just point, talked about. Yeah. <laughs> Take a point, and and Newcastle almost seemed happy with that approach as well. They really laid off us in the second half. So I was like, right, everyone's accepted today, and we're going to have to find our points elsewhere. And then that just. Illum- just the whole place just lit up after that because I was buzzing just to get back in the game. Uh, so when a youngster like Oscar Bob is to being that composed, in that I wasn't as composed, and I'm sat eating my fried chicken in my living room. <laughs> so that's how you know that's and the age. Uh, and you know I'm extremely biased around academy products. And as soon as someone hits the academy, I want them in the first team scoring match winning goals. So that's just that's just everything for me in terms of a young lad who's worked his way up, knows the city system and just slotted in perfectly. And he's almost a first teamer now without even having to really establish himself. There's no better way to establish yourself than a last minute winner in the Premier League to keep us in touch with Liverpool, is there? Yeah, I was going to say in terms of, like John mentioned Rico Lewis and he's he's almost taken on that mould of, of last season where he isn't, I, I don't know if you consider him a first team player yet, given how given his age and how involved he's yeah. been so far. But at the same time, the he is, he, yeah, he's not a youngster, is he? He's not, he's not someone you're chucking a few minutes to to get experience now. Exactly. Well, he's changed the game against Sheffield United, I think, when he assisted or pre-assisted uh, Foden's ball across Ralvarez. He's now got this on, on his uh, CV. So you're looking at him on the bench now to change games rather than always just there to get experience and to fill seats on the bench if we're away at... Uh, you know, a, a, a European side where the group's done and things like that. He's not that category anymore. Is the next one along? You wouldn't be you wouldn't be fuming if he started, and you wouldn't be surprised if he's not been selected in, in the next few games. But he's certainly already achieved that status of match changer rather than just experience getter. Yeah, and it's it'll be interesting to see how involved he is going forward. I guess John, because when you think of of Lewis last season. Um, he came in around Christmas. Things weren't really working for City at the time, and he was one of the players that helped develop the the, um, the role for John Stones later in the season. Um, and as the big games came later on, he was less and less involved. But at the same time, he, like it doesn't feel like it like that was um, like a punishment. It wasn't unmerited. He was he was very much a part of the squad last season, and you can see this season he's now very involved in it all as well. And you think what what that could mean for Bob? He might not be involved that much towards the end of this season. But by the time next season comes along, he's a first-team player. Does that make sense? Yeah, entirely it does, yeah. And, um, you know, he's a genuine option now, isn't he? And what, what is that? I think that's three starts, isn't it, now that he's that he's made this season. And I think what it what it means is that when we get into the, the, the later months of this season, if injuries do come again... You know, he's he, he is an option that um, will 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 slot right in there. You you would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, let's talk about Kevin De Bruyne, John, because um, are you surprised that he's not looked anywhere near rusty, given the amount of time he's had off? He's come on and he's sl- he's slotted straight back in. And as City fans, we always talk about how he needs three or four games to get back into the swing of things, and he's had twenty minutes and he's just running the show. But they had to get it right with them, with him this time, didn't they? Because of because of what happened with the injury and the way that that developed at the end of last season, and you, you know they took a gamble, didn't they? And and that gamble really resulted in him being out of the picture for for the five months that he has been. So, um, you know, I, I think they weren't 
the, he wasn't going to be back on the field until they were absolutely 100% confident that, that he was going to be right. And that's what they've done. And, and it wasn't a surprise, really, when you think about it, that he didn't start the match on uh, on Saturday. And I think the way the match went as well, I think that, that backed up the, you know, not just the fact that he came on and did what he did. I mean, in terms of the, the, the pace of the, the match in the first half, um, you know, it looked like a, an entirely sensible option to to bring him on when he did for the the amount of time that he did. Yeah, what was uh, what was it like watching that that goal when he uh, the way he manoeuvred his body around the ball to be able to pass it into the bottom corner was just expertly done. Yeah, listen, I was saying on Saturday <clears throat> during the commentary, I'll tell you who it reminded me of. It actually reminded me of a of a guy who very often sits next to me for commentaries, Chris Waddle. It just had that sort of because he, you know, he's he, he is a little bit bigger, isn't he? And I think it's possibly the hair as well makes him mm. makes him look a little bulkier. Yeah, and and <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, just the the way that his body went and the way that he tucked it away, it, it just really brought back a bit of Chris Waddle for me. Yeah, I think it's his posture. I think he's got terrible posture, and it looks like like he's a bit of a dad in the in the middle of the game instead of uh, this fine athlete. And then when you actually watch him, he is just actually a fine athlete with bad posture. Yeah. It's not anything else. Yeah. Um, Adam uh, Jurgen Klopp said recently that the the rest of the league was shaking at his return. Yeah. Uh, I I was a little bit skeptical because I I kind of felt as you know I think most people did that De Bruyne would need some time to settle back into it. Um, but when he do, when he comes on and assists and scores and ch- changes the game in the way that he did, the rest of the league is probably right to be shaking, isn't it? Yeah, just want to echo uh, John's comments there around. I think they've handled the rusty stage has actually been off the pitch because he's been ready for a few weeks now, but actually hasn't played. Whereas back in the day, we would have just rushed him straight back and then he has to find his feet in the pit, on the pitch. So I think that that's absolutely correct in, in why he's not been rusty. Then in terms of Klopp's comments around everyone shaking, I think Newcastle were quite satisfied with the way the game was going obviously 2-1 up but also letting us play out in front of them because we we didn't have any perceived threat or any chances we were creating we weren't taking I think they were quite happy with that then De Bruyne comes on their mindset almost they just that that midfield just almost just shrank uh the Newcastle midfield just shrank and just were locked in position and uh Rodri and De Bruyne were able to play around that and it's only in the modern game does De Bruyne is is that shot on for De Bruyne for him to score? No one else takes that shot in the current game. And that's what he gives you. That he's the difference between a game petering out to a two-one defeat or at best a two-all draw into three points rather than one. And that you know, he's just so so special. And this highlights where we've missed him because there's been previous games I've alluded to, Tottenham, Palace, you know, games we've lost in last minutes, Arsenal's. Whereas if you've got De Bruyne on the pitch, is he that difference that takes us from those draws into wins? And I think the answer is yes. Yeah, the difference maker. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to humble brag time now uh, because <laughs> um, I've... So, so through doing Let Me Talk and uh, the Other City podcast, um, I've, I get on fairly well with uh, with Nader Manua and he's asked me a few times to play in their five-a-side games. And there's always a few ex-pros floating around and, and involved. And one of them said to me the other night, uh, you're the goalkeeper, you can see everything, you... you like, like talk to us. You can see everything in front of you. And I, I realised in the middle of that, not only was I out of breath from having to do the the, <laughs> the, the actual exercise, but at the same time, I couldn't I, I couldn't verbalise what it was that I wanted to that I could see in front of me. In like, I didn't have the speed of thought to be able to express what I could see to to translate to them. And I don't know if you saw John this week. Um, 
uh, Kevin De Bruyne gave an interview in Flemish after the game where he basically talked through his thought process of scoring that goal and the things he was thinking about in in that split second. Like, I, I don't understand how anybody's got the brain power to compute it because he's watching like where Julian Alvarez has run, where the defenders are going. That Fabian Scher has got more of the goal to cover than uh, he would like, so his legs are probably slightly more open than normal. So he thinks well. maybe I can slide it through there and, and, <laughs> and leave it out of reach of the goalkeeper. And I'm, and I'm sitting there thinking, I don't understand how you can process this so quickly. Mm. I often marvel at the, that, exactly that, the speed of thought that the very best players have when you, when you see them, whether it's whether it's Messi or whether it's Mbappe or whether it's Kevin De Bruyne or, you know, Bernardo Silva as well, you know, in the way that he took that ball away for his goal on Saturday, you know, the, the speed of thought and the execution that goes into that. But I think um, Pep Guardiola said after the match on Saturday, didn't he, about Kevin De Bruyne, he said uh, something along the lines of he... He has more space and freedom than anyone else, and and you can see it, can't you? You, you know, just he he, he just instinctively is able to, it, to yeah. find those places. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, the other thing Guardiola said, John, after the game was that uh, the performance was fine without De Bruyne, but then when he comes on, he adds those big moments. And I guess, I guess that's the difference. I mean, City City could have have, have won the game without bringing him on, possibly. Um, but it's almost like like bringing him on makes it that little bit more certain. The thing about City this season, obviously, they've played to this point virtually without him. Um, you know, with, with with him only making the appearances that he has. But I think as well, you know, there have been bumps, haven't there? There have been hiccups along the way this season. But I think when you consider who's not been there, as you as you were mentioning earlier, you know, John Stones has played so little football this season. Um, De Bruyne. Uh, what is it now? Nine matches, I think, that Haaland's missed the last nine matches in all competitions, and and you know, I feel I feel watching them that they still miss Gundogan. You know, I think he's yeah. a, he's a <laughs> that that player they they don't have any more yet. Where are they? They're they're two points off the lead, and I think that's the that, that's the concern for for the other clubs in Liverpool. Yeah, sorry about this, John, but I'm going to ask you to pick your best finish now um, from the City ones: Bernardo <laughs> De Bruyne or, or Bob? Which are you going for? I'm going to go for. It's hard, it's isn't be, it? Yeah. It's got to be Bob. I think it's got to be Bob. Yeah, the, the silky footwork, Adam. Which which did you go for? I'm going for Bernardo. Just just the instinct, whipped cross in, and to put us one up in tricky situations. I know Bob wins us a game in tricky situations. So you've got that as well, but Bernardo for me. Yeah, um, a couple of other things from the game to tidy up. Um, first off, John, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on this. Uh, the City have had two freak injuries recently to defenders mm. in uh, three big games um, because of uh, basically the the late offside flag. I'm not really sure there's any other way you can do it in the VAR era. You kind of have to let it play out if it's a tight one. Um, what, like, what's, what's your thoughts on it all? Uh, unlucky for Manchester City that it's happened twice in the space of three games. Um but, you know, everyone's said it for so long, haven't they, um, that it is an inevitability when you when you officiate in this way. And, and you're right. I don't think there's any other way that you can do it. You have to you have to see how things play out unless it's absolutely, you know, so clear. You, you know, I, I, it's I'm not sure how you would get around it, in all honesty, because I think you have to you have to use the system in the way that it is currently being used. Yeah, Adam, it's it's still frustrating. Uh, did you did you see the hole in Edison's leg? <laughs> I thought it was photoshopped. It was that <laughs> clean a cut. Uh, yeah, so as it, it's, it doesn't make it any less frustrating. But I, it's weird. I totally agree with the uh, 
the delayed flag, even though it's leading to these situations because there's no way around it. And I tweeted saying two injuries to two delayed flags. It looked as if I was complaining about the system, but I get it's the system. So it's just a frust- it doesn't make it any less frustrating and it doesn't make the players any less injured because it happened when the game wasn't in play anymore. So it's frustrating. But that, that cut to uh, Edison's leg was graphic. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, an X-rated image, that one. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Adam, Kyle Walker's been criticised this mm. season. Um, he came under flack for, for both goals again. Uh, do, do you agree with it? I'm, I, I'm, I, I guess for the second one he could get out there a bit quicker, but ultimately, I like. It feels like there's more fundamental flaws in the way City were playing than than Kyle Walker didn't close his man down. Yeah, that, that ball seemed to be on a lot. That ball behind, and um, we were getting caught by it a lot. Obviously, we've mentioned there were some off, offside calls as well that came on the back of them. So the, that ball was on a lot. And it was obviously by design because we didn't do anything about it after the third or fourth uh, way they were catching us. With it, it, but also this is really ridiculous for me to criticise any professional athlete as I'm sat here in my bedroom <laughs> recording a podcast talking about it. But it just looked as if it was a choice not to go and close the man down. I think a Walker thought he had the pace on both of them if he needed it, but it never really, it never really came to that because the they stood off him and still had enough room to shoot. So uh, it did look like a cho- choice. It didn't look like he got caught in two minds. There was there was an overlapping run that maybe gave a little element of thought, but we're talking about this speed of thought, and to be at the elite level, you need to be able to make the right decisions in that split second. Now, obviously, there's off-the-pitch issues with Walk, which we won't go into, but do, I, I thought that that might be playing on his mind a bit, and it was just some weird, weird defending for someone who would be, been able to rely on so heavily when there's there's a counter-attack against does so yeah it just looked like a choice to me which is absolutely a you know i know that my first analysis my first abc analysis and there'll be more depth to it but on first viewing i was like get out you go on twitter everyone's saying why is he not closed him down um and because we're used to him doing that so that that's why it looked so weird because he'd just been beaten by the exact same goal in the space of five minutes and i think that compounds it as well in terms of how bad a performance was when it's all in, in one you know microscopic moment uh, then it seems worse than it actually was because he he provided the assist and Pep was more than gushing in his praise of him after the game in terms of the cuddles and hugs at the celebration. So he obviously didn't have a public problem with it anyway. They have been vulnerable, haven't they, in this way? And that's not just my, you know, I don't, like you, I don't see all of the games all of the time, but it's my it's my feeling that they have been, and you know, they are vulnerable. They, they've, they've conceded goals. What are, I think it's two clean sheets away from home this season. You know, so they've got, they are, they have, leaked goals in and and that is not unusual for them to concede goals in that way i think with kyle walker as well and okay yeah they've been the, the sort of non-football related headlines that of, of the over the course of the last week but i think he's shown in the past that when there's been noise off the field uh, i think he's i think he said it that he he finds that actually playing the game um He's one of those people, I think, who's able to to, to switch off of that and switch on to, to to what he's doing when it comes to the the, the job as a football player. Yeah. Um, the other the other player that I wanted to bring up, John, just to finish, was uh, Rodri because uh, he seemed to control absolutely everything City did. Um, what was it from from the TV? It's quite hard to get a, a view of his overall performance in the in the ground. What was it like? He looks like an absolute colossus. Um, you know, when you when you see him in, in up against, you know, I think I was looking at him <laughs> next to Miley, uh, and you know, who's obviously a seventeen-year-old, so he's a, he's effectively a boy, but you know, he is just he is quite literally head and shoulders above you know some of his opponents, and he's just just his stature, the way he carries himself, um, 
you know, everyone knows how important he is. Yeah. But uh, is there a sense, Adam, that he might need to calm his temper a little bit? Yeah. Because uh, uh, sent off against Nottingham Forest in unusual circumstances earlier in the season, in, in a way that you don't expect from him. Um, perhaps a little bit lucky in, in um, against Newcastle, given that uh, already on a yellow, he went yeah. steaming into Bruno in the box. Yeah, I'm constantly on pins when he, we see this red-headed... Uh, temperament that he's got but annoyingly he's, he's usually right in the uh in, in the decisions that are going against him um he can be a good master of the dark arts as well he's not innocent by any stretch of the imagination but um every time he loses his head I'm, I'm thinking learn your lesson from the forest game you're so important to us but i guess in the heat of the battle he's not going to think back oh yeah i'm going to get sent off if yeah. i lose my head here he's just going to lose his head but i'm always on when anyone ever leaves something on him and he reacts i'm like no please don't please don't but that's easy for me to say and it's just so important to us, and that's highlighted by the stats that he's not lost in 50 games and we lost all the four that, that he didn't play this season, and it's just that that speaks for itself. So, but I'd, just, I'd love someone to just, as soon as that uh, issue arises, literally runs in there, arm around the shoulder and turns him around and goes the other way because without that, we are always he's always on the edge, but I think the best players are, and he obviously needs to play with that little bit of fire just to uh, excel as he does. His, his strength, David, his strength is actually an Achilles heel for Manchester City now because of the, because of the fact that they've lost the games when he's missing. Yeah. I, I could see a scenario whereby, for whatever reason, if the, when the biggest games come around, if he's not available, I could see that being a real issue. Yeah, it's a psychological thing. It becomes a psychological thing now as well because the stats back it up. So then, you know, it, it becomes factual then, doesn't it? And it, it, that will be a worry in the business end, certainly. Yeah. What I would say, Adam, just to calm those nerves, is there's been a couple <laughs> of times he's been on a yellow this season and looked on the edge and mm. has kept it all under control. So, like, he can yeah. do it. Yeah, I'll... I'll- yeah, I'll pick you up on that one when it when it does spill over <laughs> next time. But yeah, I love I love these therapy sessions that you provide for me. Good, good. <laughs> you can listen to the show ad free by joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Well, last week, the uh, former City manager Sven-Goran Eriksson revealed that he's been diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer and he's got about a year left to live. With the winter break leaving City without a game this weekend, we've decided to use the extra time in this week's show to reminisce about the season that Sven had at Eastlands. In a few minutes, I'll be joined by Chris Higginbottom, Dom Fowle and Richard Burns. But first, we're going to hear some of the interview I did with Sven back in January 2011. He starts here by remembering the run-up to the first Manchester derby of that 2007-8 campaign. I wish that at that time that we had uh, had more times to prepare things and that we didn't well it was more or less every day it came a new player but uh, anyhow the players were very clever and very good good football players so they they uh, we started the season very well and better than than I thought we should have and better than anyone thought I, I guess you could feel it the whole week before that this is something special and I remember when I signed for a city uh, one of the supporters came came to me and said, Sven, don't talk about Europe or uh, the league or whatever it is. Just beat Manchester United twice. And that's it, he said. <laughs> that's the most important. <laughs> uh, it's important, of course it's important, but the most important, of course, is the final result for the for the club. You could feel the derby, and if you compare it with, uh, with Lisbon or Rome or... Where I've been before, it's it's great. Probably it's the biggest derby I've been involved in. 
I think it's uh, it's pretty much agreed that uh, after Christmas the form wasn't quite as good, but there was uh, there was one game that uh, that really stands out for City fans, and that's the uh, the second derby of the season at Old Trafford. How were you feeling about that before the game? Well, it was a special game because it was uh, Memorial Day for the tra- tragic um, air accident for Manchester United. So in that way, it was very very special, and I will always remember in all my life. The minutes before the kickoff, when it was uh, one minute silence, in and I remember the during all the week, uh, some of the people from City they were nervous that uh, City fans would boo them or something like that, and uh, I think it was uh, great one minute of civilization and uh, education or whatever you say. You couldn't hear anything at the stadium for for the whole minute and. Uh, that's one of these moments you you're getting very very proud of, of the club you work for and the fans you were you were working for. Very very proud. It was it was great. What do you remember the game itself? Well, I think uh, we were not lucky. We we were very good. We we deserved to win that game. Uh, if you talk about the first game at home, uh, we played okay. We played good. We won. But the second game, I think we were brilliant and we deserved to beat uh, United at that time. At home, we played good, but not as good as we did away. Away was a very, very good football game. And uh, what what do you think went wrong then towards the towards the end of the season for you at City? Well, we dropped a little bit in form, that's for sure. Uh, or maybe it's maybe it's more normal. I think. Christmas time we were were we second in the league at a certain point uh, for rather a long time if I don't remember badly uh, I think we were very good I don't think we were as good as we could keep a second place for for the rest of the season that was one reason another reason at the end of the season it became too many rumors about my future in the club and uh, my not my relationship but Texans relationship with me was totally broken down he he never talked to me he didn't he didn't want to talk to me the last couple of months and of course players knew that and the whole ambient became from being great it became uh, not bad bad but it became well i think everyone was at that time a little bit disappointed of what was happening not on the pitch but off the pitch well, I was going to say, what was it like managing the team, knowing that the uh, the chairman intended to sack you at the end of the season? That that must have been very difficult for you. Uh, well, you have to try to do the best you can, but uh, it wouldn't have been a problem if only I knew about it, or I was I didn't know about it, but I was rather sure that that, that would happen. But as soon as it comes out to other people in the club and the players and the staff and at the end, the fans knew it as well, or they suspected it. That it became, it becomes very difficult. And I think for everyone, and I think it's very, very normal that it shouldn't have happened, uh, that that came out. I think uh, the Thai people at that time with Dr. Texan, he should have had, uh, he could have sacked me at the end of the season, but he should never have letting us suspect it that that would happen. That was his great mistake, so. I take the blame for the last games of the season, but I think he should take equal blame of it because as a football director, you can't act like that. 
hear the full interview on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. So that was Fangoran Eriksson speaking to me back in 2011. Um, I'm now joined by Chris Higginbottom. Hello there. Dom Farrell. Hello. And Richard Burns. Hello. And uh, we're going to take a few minutes now to look back over that 2007-8 season that uh, Sven was in charge of. Um, Don, we were listening to him there, and it's it's just brought back a whole load of memories from that season. Um, and it's like it's I, I can't believe it's so so long ago that we actually spoke to him on the podcast as well. Um, but before we get into that season itself, we should actually start with what it was like before he arrived. Um, so, what what do you remember of where City were before Sven joined? Because like Stuart Pearce had been sacked. The takeover wasn't really happening until late in that summer. Um, like the fans just needed a bit of optimism, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, it was it was unspeakably bleak, wasn't it? Really, um, it, it was of course the infamous season where City just decided to forego scoring goals at home. Um, last home goals in the league on January the first in that season. Ten at ten home overall, um, and in a sort of the more things change, the more things stay the same way. Um, I remember quite vividly the day that the Shinawatra takeover looked like it was being confirmed was the same day um, that it came out that Joey Barton had battered Usman Darbo in training and that had all blown up. Um, and yeah, I saw I, 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 I checked that. I saw that on my phone when I was out in Manchester. So it's like um, even even then you were checking your phone and realised Joey Barton had been a bell end. So, um, <laughs> Whatever happened to him, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was. I, I, I mean, I do remember, and it's an interesting thing about the taxing takeover. And I think obviously there's been lots and lots of talk about the various issues that come along with City's current ownership. But I think one of the reasons there was a bit of a lightness of touch around the Abu Dhabi takeover when it happened is that taxing was by all accounts like a lunatic on the run. Um, who, <laughs> who Amnesty International were like, this is this guy's a big wrong and who's like you know, disappeared a load of drug dealers or whatever. Um, mm. Yeah, that was mad. So I, I remember thinking at that time, it's like, so this crackpot with lots of um, very well frozen assets, as it turned out, was going to buy the club and the best player, although that does say an awful lot about the rest of the players in that team, has just basically been thrown out for uh, putting a teammate in hospital. It's like, this is terrible um and then along came Sven and it just like you, you get in that interview that, that you had with them um, with young David Mooney there that yeah I sound <laughs> I sound so young in that don't there's, I? Um, <laughs> there's just such a lightness and a he sort of he always had like a natural levity and I, I like because obviously he wasn't that long after he was England manager and it's like a year what, wasn't it one year yeah, it was his next job after, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, it was a year. But like, and when he came into England, it was like you know, it was, it was a big sort of thing of England having an overseas manager, and he sort of quickly sort of captured everyone's hearts. Then, um, I think it's as simple as it was just really nice to have a nice bloke in charge. And obviously, they they signed some of those players that you know people like Ilano and Petro were like still cult heroes. Stephen Ireland had his Superman underpants season, you know. So there was loads of other good things going on, but it just everything about the club at that time felt so sort of just horrid. Yeah. And it, Having, it needed it, I, didn't it? I, I, and then just Sven Waltz is in, in his perfect suit, just being really polite to everyone. 
it was just, it was kind of really nice. Yeah, Chris, when you when I mean Dom's mentioned there the summer signings. You think back, um, it was a trolley dash around Europe for like a, in the space of twenty three days. He signed Bianchi, Jelson Fernandez, Giovanni, Petrov, Choluka, Alano, Garrido, and Bojinov. And like all of a sudden, these players are arriving at City, and like we we've got a little bit of momentum, and there's like there's things happening. How were you feeling when all this was going on? Absolutely brimming with excitement and anticipation. To be honest, it was uh, as Dom's alluded to there. It was a bit of a a sketchy time with Thaksin um, and all that that entailed, and Ericsson just. Really was like a bit of a beacon in the in the middle of that. Um, he was a class act, said everything right. His record, uh, his club record, <laughs> was really really good. I mean, England wasn't that bad, but you know he was a, a classy manager, said all the right things very well. And to be honest, the players that that he brought in just added to that excitement. Really, they, they looked. I mean, when we won at West Ham two 0 on the opening day, it was like there was a a very, very different feeling to... It's like the antithesis of the, the prevailing feeling that the Stuart Pearce era kind of weighed you down with. Yeah, it was di- diametrically opposed, wasn't it? That's yeah, what it was, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was a glorious sunshine, one of the most beautiful kits we've ever had. I've still got that shirt, by the way, which uh, I think somebody got a job lot of them from... <laughs> Vietnam or something. Uh, I, I bought one in the Trevor Arms while I was working there. Off, uh, well, I won't tell you who. Yeah, so let's let's, let's keep names out of it. Cheers, Jimmy. Um, but but yeah, it, it was fantastic, and and everyone was just cock a hoot, weren't it? it? Was like we're going to win the league. This is amazing. Look at this team. Look at all these players. They're, they've all been brought in. They're all gelling fantastically with each other and with the existing players. There's a lot of good academy players in the squad and the team. And it just it just felt like a new dawn. And in many yeah. ways, I guess, uh, well, it was one. <laughs> it was one of them. You have a lot of people who, well, uh, maybe a lot might be stretching it, but you still hear people talk about that West Ham away as like one of the great days out. And yeah. When you consider the days out that have followed, um, I think that speaks volumes, doesn't it? Yeah. Richard, when you think back to what Manchester was like as well, I remember seeing billboards all over the city uh, with a re- with a close-up of Sven's uh, face in black and white, and then in blue it just said underneath, old blue eyes is back. And it was just like the club were getting really on board with this th- with this injection of good feeling as well. Yeah, God, I, f- I forgot about that. Um, yeah, it was... I mean, they needed to, didn't they? For for uh, reasons that have already been discussed, like it was like an, an, a new dawn sort of barely covers it because of because of how bad it had been before. Like to go from the absolute nadir, like that. Looking back at the ten goals at home season, to me is almost like more of a reference point for how bad we've been in Premier League terms than relegation seasons because it's like teams get relegated all the time. Not many teams go like nearly half a season without scoring a goal at home. So to go from that to having the takeover and an established manager who'd won things at club level, who, um, you know, there was an element of being... Um, it, I don't know if exotic is the right word to use, but like that, bringing in an overseas manager, like City could attract 
somebody with this status. Mm. Like the club had to harness that. That was a. Um, it, it would have been. It, it, it would have been terrible from a PR perspective not to try and harness it. There was. I, there was I, a really not, good feeling. Yeah, I'd not thought about that as well. But like they'd had previous, like previously they'd had Keegan, so they'd had a, a, a an England manager as City as their next job. Um, but there's something different about Ericsson over Keegan, like moving on from England to City, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I think maybe with Keegan, there was an element of... Like, he'd failed, hadn't he, at international level. By his own admission, he hadn't been good enough to do that job. And he, I guess he'd had the sort of groundswell of support to get it at the time, and, and it hadn't worked out. So there was almost an element of he could really have been at the end of his career and he came to City and I guess proved that wasn't the case and, and did really well for the vast majority of that time. Ericsson, by my recollection, didn't really feel like that. He'd come to a natural end as England manager. It hadn't quite gone as well as um, as people would have liked given the, the quality of players that he had available to him. But actually, you look back and the consistency of England reaching World Cup quarterfinals was... Um, something that then wasn't replicated until Southgate. So he was a high performer. Like he came in having done a pretty reasonable job managing top, top level players. Um, and that with then, some send-ins off as well in those England games, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And then I think you factor into that, like you mentioned, the, the sort of mad dash around Europe collecting players. You got the sense that we had a manager whose name played a big part in why we could attract um, players who had pretty decent reputations at the time and who caused all that excitement that that was that was a really good thing to be able to harness as well. Yeah, Dom, that uh, that press conference photo where he, where he's surrounded by about eight of his of his new signings <laughs> is a is a joy to behold. It's brilliant. Um, veteran Lucas there, he, he looks like um, that's obviously the, that picture the other day. You know the um, the vultures at the end of the Jungle Book. He looks like one of them, like his hair like, <laughs> over his eyes. Like a, um, but the yeah, that was, yeah, he, yeah, he does look like one of the one of the vulture beetles. Um, so no, I, I remember really vividly that. So that summer, I had a well, yeah, a summer job. Given it, it was summer um, <laughs> at, at, at Piccadilly Station, like um, stacking the drinks trolleys for the first class trains, um, which was like you go in. It was like early every morning. You finish at lunchtime. So like there was kind of a thing of. Walking through town was when they handed out. They were still giving out free MENs then. Yeah, um, and like there was genuine thing like getting off the bus, get because obviously it's just it's just about before Twitter, isn't it? This time of getting the free newspaper and going, who's this city assigned today? Then who is what is a Javier Garrido? You know? <laughs> it was um yeah it was great um and yeah there was a lot of United fans who worked in that warehouse actually which so and I was still doing the job when the Derby at the Etihad happened so. Sorry, the City of Manchester Stadium happened, so that that was good too. Um, yeah. yeah, good times. Fa- favorite players from from those uh, early ones, Chris? Are there any that that stood out as uh, as absolute City legends for you? Well, I mean, the obvious one is Ilano, um, a player of real class, but also when he wanted to, he could put it about a bit. He was just a really, really good all round footballer and a cracking right back, as it turned out uh, eventually. But um, I really liked Koluka. A lot of people slagged him off a bit. I think that was due to his weird... He had like a weird 
running style. Which, he only had one gear, didn't he? <laughs> well, he, it looked like that. He ran in he sort of had the running style of like Pingu or some strange <laughs> plasticine animation. He kind of just flopped along, but he was quicker than he looked. And I thought he was a really good footballer. And I had an absolute torch for um, Bojanov. I just thought he was class. Mm. And it just absolutely ruined me every time he got injured because it, it was just evidently never really going to work for him. And I think if he'd have stayed injury-free... I think he would have been an absolute world beater. Yeah, um, I have to. I have to, Richard, chuck out um, a, a, a shout for Martin Petrov because, oh. yeah, in terms of like actual wing play, I'd not seen a winger like Petrov at City before. Yeah, well, that was um, if if you'd have asked me um, the, the same question you asked Chris, then. Um, other than saying, I mean, bizarrely, Chris stole literally every word that I wanted to say about Chaluka. Um, the, the ping, the ping, ping, ping bit, yeah. Yeah, that was running through my mind too. I've always thought that. Um, waddling, waddling through <laughs> your mind it was. Well, <laughs> looks like a waddle was actually running. This is the thing. Um, yeah, no, I, Petrov would have been mine. Um, he was he was just exciting, wasn't he? And again, I suppose it goes back... It works in contrast to what had come before as well, when nothing was exciting. Like absolutely nothing about watching City before this time was exciting in you know the time immediately preceding it. So to then be going watching someone who really beat a man and like was was happy running at players, and he was you know the kind of player that is a bit of a cliche, I suppose, but a player like that gets fans off the seat. And if like. We weren't in contention for winning the league. I know we were challenging around the top four for the first half of the season. But when you know that um, most of the time this isn't going to result in trophies, like I think the just the excitement of going watching exciting players and I guess flair players who whose intention is just to attack, like you invest a lot in that. And obviously you still do. Like it's still great to go and watch exciting players. But I guess now we watch so many more of them that it's a lot more normalized there's, a, there's a bigger time, picture to it as well isn't there there yeah. like this, this was new exactly yeah and it was um yeah petrov would be i guess still my uh, my standout favorite from that era he could dig out across from deep as well couldn't he like a sort of hagiesque ability to mm. put a whip on the ball from a place like so deep that you wouldn't expect him to get a decent cross into the box and still curl it across and be in swing into an incoming kind of forward run. He, yeah, I really I, liked his, his I, technique. I tell you that, I mean, people will remember him delivering the ball for Ben Jarney's goal at Old Trafford, but um, the one that I always think of as a typical Martin Petrov move uh, is the Mpenza diving header against Newcastle, where he gets it on the halfway line. He just hits it down the line because he knows he's faster than the defender. Gets around the outside and it looks like he's gone too far with it, crosses it back and Mpenza heads it in and it's Honestly, it's it's incredible wing play. If you don't remember it, go back and watch it if you can. It's it's incredible. Uh, Dom, the other player I wanted to shout out in the in the early days of that uh, that season was Michael Johnson because um, he he'd come into the team under Stuart Pearce the at the at the back end of the previous season, um, but it was only really under Sven that he started to excel. Yeah, um, I saw so, obviously when the the very sad news about Sven came out the other week. Uh, a lot of people were sharing that Michael Johnson goal against Derby, which, again, to go back to the previous points, was a league goal at home. That was like, remember <laughs> those? And it's such a wonderful goal. And it's it's a it's a passage of play that sums up what Johnson was so good at. Like he was so elegant, such a graceful player. But there's like 
there's an understated power about him too. I saw someone saying it's the most Kevin De Bruyne goal not scored by Kevin De Bruyne, which I think mm, is yeah, a tremendous shout. Um, although maybe De Bruyne would have absolutely cased it rather than hitting it delicately with the outside of his foot like Johnson did. Yeah, he, he was absolutely delightful. Um, At the time, um, people were comparing it to Bell, weren't they, when he scored it? Yeah, totally. And and that's the other point of reference that you get with, with KDB nowadays, I guess. Um, yeah, it, it was like, I think... We, uh, we said earlier, it's like there was the, the combination between these exciting new signings, but you had that youthful core of Richards, Anuha, Island, Johnson. Like, you know, the, the academy was bearing fruit and it was it was real quality. It wasn't like, with the greatest respect, Willow Flood getting a game because there was no one else about. It was like, it was, it was such a lovely blend of players. Um, mm. You also, I mean, I know City fans think of him as just being a gobshite nowadays, but you had Diddy Herman at the base of that midfield as well, who... Look for all the world like a terrible signing on the pace, but him sort of at the base of that midfield with Johnson and Alano, Petrov and Ireland in front of him, just sort of knitting it all together. I, I remember her man was brilliant in that Old Trafford derby. Um, that that first eleven was just a really really good blend, and for that that first half two thirds of the season, it was um it was a pleasure. And Johnson when he was fixed, obviously that was also the year when his fitness problems properly started. But when Johnson was fit, he was a delightful part of that. I had a beer with Michael Johnson, actually. He's a lovely fella. Met him in a bar in Fallowfield. And this was, a, I think this was on the sort of, when he was out of the team and there were question marks about what, why he was out and people speculating. And um, he was just really, really open and honest. Uh, he's an Ermston lad as well. So that was kind of an in with me in terms of like, you know, oh, hey, mate, I to see you, or Michael Johnson, aren't you? And he was aware that he was and confirmed it. <laughs> and um, yeah, same neck of the woods. Really nice lad, bought us a beer. Uh, was genuinely warm and open and honest about the fact that it just, he just said some, I'm paraphrasing because it was a long time ago, but it was just basically head wasn't in the right place, um, came to the decision that the right thing to do was to knock it on the head, enjoyed it while he was, while he was, you know, active and, and doing well, but it wasn't for him. And uh, yeah. he was doing really well. I think he was something in the line of a state agent, something like that. But he seemed to be on his feet and, uh, yeah, really, really nice lad. Yeah, it's uh, it's nice to hear that. Um, Richard, let's let's talk about the Derby double because uh, it was the first time we as fans had experienced that as, uh, well, had experienced winning at Old Trafford as part of this. Um the the first derby was good. The second derby was better. Even was that the one you were caught swearing on Sky, David? Um, <laughs> what a thing to say! Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, it was. Yes, it fucking was. <laughs> yeah, the um, I mean, the first one was, as I recall, um, somewhat fortuitous. Yeah, I they they battered us for ninety minutes, and we scored against the run of play. <laughs> yeah, I think of all the derby victories that we've pulled off over United, and even used to pull off even when we weren't the um, the the top dogs in Manchester. That one was the one that was like the most. How on earth have we done this? Even the goal was deflected, wasn't it? Um, but the Old Trafford one, uh, yeah, I was caught flipping the V's um, at the United fans on 82 minutes and 15 seconds. The, um, <laughs> the mobile... the time, yeah. not, not that I remember. Um, yeah, the um, the mobile reception is terrible in the Old Trafford away end. So I got out to a raft of text messages. I'm sure I've just seen you on TV. And then 
about a week later on Facebook, uh, a United supporting school friend of mine um, who was on a gap year in Australia uh, messaged me to say, the first game I've been able to watch in two months was the Derby. And I'm on the other side of the world and your effing face comes up on my screen. <laughs> I was like, this is absolutely perfect. Um, so the, the eighth minute then? So, so No, no, eight, 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 82nd minute. So when we were oh, two right. Oh, so I, I thought like within 10 minutes of this beautiful moment of Mancunian harmony <laughs> and togetherness, you were like, yeah, fuck off. <laughs> no, no, no. I was give, giving it the big one uh, once we were in a um, in a commanding lead, and it looked like we were going to hold on to it. The next time I saw that guy was um, the, his first game back from Australia was before a derby at Old Trafford. I saw him outside, um, said hello to him, asked him what he thought the game was going to be like, and he said, "I can't call it a win, but it will definitely be tight." And yes, so he went on to win six one. So, um, <laughs> That was great. Um, but yeah, the, the Benjani derby was uh, like to, to pull off a double against them. When I think Sven said it in that, that interview that you played at the start, like that's enough to cement a legacy as a manager or as a, as a player, because we just hadn't done that in, was it 35 years or so? Or was yeah. it 30? Was it? I think it was 69 years since the previous one. So yeah. Yeah. It was so long since we'd won at Old Trafford, so long since we'd, um, Played without a sponsor. <laughs> yeah, also <laughs> true. Um, so since we've done the double, so just to go there and and fully deserve it, like that was the difference from the Etihad win. Like we were we were well worth that win. And obviously, there's a lot to be said for the occasion and whether that affected um, affected United. But on on the pitch, City were the better team, and it was just magnificent. It was proper proper bragging rights and. Um, yeah, like a, I guess you, you look back at it now and those kind of things, again, they've become pretty normal, but at the time they just weren't and we should never lose sight of that. It was huge. Yeah. Chris, you mentioned the kits. Um, it, it, they were playing kits for the anniversary and it was, I, I don't know why, but I can't explain why. That makes it all the more special for me. Well, yeah, it's just nice to see a kit like that, isn't it? It's like when we played in the, the Charity Shield um, with that special edition kit. No, but I mean, it just takes away the the corporate element and it's just easier on the eye and it? aesthetically, it's just far more appealing. Um, similar to that, that Sash third kit where the Etihad sponsor is like really diddy under the badge mm. is one of my favourite kits as well. But yeah, the whole, the whole thing was just absolutely perfect. Although immediately after the game, I was, uh, I was doing, I was working two jobs at the time because we'd started uh, when I was a gardener business was kind of in its infancy and I had a second job at the Trevor Arms where I got that other kit from actually <laughs> and um, immediately on the final whistle there was a few Reds in there who there was a few well quite a few people in there who didn't normally drink in there and there was a little bit of tension City's win didn't go down massively well with quite a few people and there was a huge riot um, in the vault and yeah I ended up doing um, Neo style chair dodging uh, as they <laughs> hurtled through the air towards me. I'm just like leaning back with my arms going, whoa, like octopusing out of the way of the, uh, the flying bits and bobs. But yeah, uh, good fun, good fun day all around. Yeah. Um, Benjani's gold on. Um, talk, talk me through your reaction when that went in. Um, I, that was incredible. So like, so the first goal, um, 
is brilliant because it's one of those. So I watched that at home with with folks and had like a, a few sort of mate or mates round. Um, Vassell's trying. He's trying his best to miss that, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, hasn't Evan Van der Sar stopped a throwing really <laughs> on the first one? Um, it's no. So, but like because of that, that that chaos of everyone around the box. So I find the best goal celebrations are the ones where it's like nearly in, nearly in, and then because so everyone's already out of their seat by the time it finally goes in. So that was like that was bedlam round our round our house but that it was still like a bit of a novelty thing of like you it's win at old trafford and that's great it's never happened since 1974 but this is fun by the way the, the fan who said just beat united twice was he insane it's like <laughs> like it just never happened did it like it, uh Sven, you just do this thing that hasn't happened for three and a half decades crack on that'll be fine all, all you've got to do um he was right though wasn't he it was, but yeah, I mean, just a, strikes me as a mad thing to say. Anyway, um, the second goal was like, it just felt really surreal. And it's like, I remember thinking quickly after that win, thinking, oh God, they could actually win here. But but still being scarred by the first derby I went to as a season ticket holder was the one where Niall Quinn scored twice for half-time and United won 3-2. So you know it's like 2-0 is a dangerous scoreline and all that. Um, but... Yeah, the Benjani one just felt properly like lightheaded, surreal. Like, is this really happening? Yeah, here we go. Um, the second half of the season, though, Richard, that 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 game is the standout because uh, aside from that, it all did turn quite sour towards the end. What what do you put that down to? There, there was a lot of players injured. There was a lot of off the field turmoil. Was it just too much for everybody? Do you think? I think so, and I, I think. I, I mean, feel free to um, tell me if I'm talking absolute rubbish and um, letting sort of the latter half of the season cloud my memory of the first. I do think maybe there's a, a sense that the first half of the season was a bit of an overperformance as well. Like to go from, like even, even just in thinking, like to settle so many new players into a team and get immediate results out of them is a really, really difficult thing to do. And that was something obviously City did manage to achieve. But again, like, to keep to, to labour this point about what had gone before it, to go from a team that couldn't score goals and were, you know, by on that basis quite fortunate to stay in the division, um, to them being a team that are really knocking around the top four. Like realistically, was that ever sustainable? Of course there are examples of teams that have pulled it off, like Leicester being the very obvious, but there's a reason that things like that don't happen very often. Um, And so I think the second half of the season was bad and you, you can't, like you can't escape the fact that that was probably an underperformance. But then, like on balance of that that first half of the season, I think they were probably playing above themselves to have a new manager. So many new players just instantly turned things around. Um, but un- unquestionably, like that point where we knew there was a there was a fairly extended period of time, wasn't there, where we knew that Sven was going to be going, and that you know the supporters didn't want him to go, and there was the whole sort of save our Sven stuff. I think that indicates some of the sort of internal turmoil and that things weren't necessarily being very well run. Um, so, yeah, I think you there's loads of factors as to why the second half wasn't as good. But I think you do have to set it in context that the first half was just so much better than we could reasonably have expected it to be anyway. Yeah. 
Chris, when you when you think in it, like it all culminates in that eight one loss at Middlesbrough, and like it, it feels an awful shame that that is Sven's last game in charge, and that's kind of how his how his legacy is viewed by by people outside the club. In that it it just all turned to this horrific performance in in Middlesbrough. Um, what do you put that down to? Because there's a lot of talk of of players, you know, protesting in that game, and I've asked players that were involved, and you know, I've never been able to 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 get to the bottom of whether it was or it wasn't. It just feels like that game was was such a, I mean, such a bad moment for everybody. Well, I've been berated by a couple of smoggies over the years about that. Um, they seem to hold it dear to the hearts that they managed to beat City eight one. Um, I mean, we had beaten them. What was it three one at home that season and two nil away the previous season? It was a complete free result. Unfortunately for Middlesbrough, we were well aware, even if they were, and our season was already over that day, so it doesn't yeah. actually count, which is a shame <laughs> for them. But you awful know, shame. Yeah, I don't make the rules. That's just that's just how <laughs> it is. But I don't think it was a protest. I think it's as you just said there, and as I've said, it, everybody knew the season was kind of done. And what's the point in busting your balls on T side? for a manager that you know isn't going to be there next season. Um, you don't know if you're going to be there next season. You've got a very nice holiday booked, thank you very much, and you don't want to get injured. Um, let's just see this out and get the hell out of Middlesbrough. And I've spoken to Richard Dunn about it, who's got a very funny yarn on that Hans Backer, Sven's assistant, was um, did a bit of a team talk beforehand that was basically imploring them not to get... Get, get silly and get loads of bookings because City were ahead in the fair play league, which eventually would get them into Europe. Um, of course, the punchline of that is that Dunny then went and got himself sent off in the fifth minute, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. He, he said he just he was walking off feeling really bad for all that Hansbacker said was don't get booked and he's gone and got himself sent off really early on. So, yeah, that's, that's a good one. Pro- probably one that he'll recycle in many an after-dinner speech. I'm I um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Richard. Just to finish, then, how how do you reflect on the overall season of of Sven at City? I think uh, the more time goes on, the more I look back at it fondly. I think at the at the time, I didn't enjoy the end of the season at all, um, and it probably had ultimately maybe not an overall positive view of it. But the more time goes on, and remember just how fun that first half of the season was and how good it was to be united twice and even having an 8-1 defeat at the end of it with everything that has sort of come at city since like even that is um it's, it's hard to praise them for it but it's not like it's a funny little moment a funny little footnote in our oh, it's very city pre- isn't it yeah. yeah in our premier league history um and yeah sven brought back something that had been missing for so long you made it fun to watch City again and ultimately um like isn't that just what you want your football team to be you want to go with a little bit of hope that something good might happen and you want to enjoy it while you're watching and we had that and we had good results along with it um for a decent portion of the time so yeah I I reflect on it very fondly um and it, it was just good to have something to enjoy again after a period where we had not This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Listen to it. Drink it in.
That was a look back over Sven Goran Eriksson's time at Manchester City. Everyone here at the Blue Moon Podcast would like to send our best wishes to Sven and his family following that terminal cancer diagnosis. Um, Adam, you were originally going to be part of that discussion, but sadly we couldn't make diaries sync up, so you couldn't be involved with it. Um, yeah. I, I, I asked you initially because I know that this is one of your favourite yeah. seasons. Yeah, um, that when we did our lockdown sessions and we were doing season reviews, I instantly hit you up and said, I need to do the Sven season because after the Kevin Keegan season that was that's my favorite one you know even in comparison to some of the stuff we've we've witnessed over the recent years he was just we hadn't scored a goal at home in eight months <laughs> and then he comes along with all these new fancy players who we got to learn and in, learn about and enjoy he obviously oversaw two derby a derby double for the first time in god knows how long in our lifetime um and he oversaw the emergence of michael johnson as well local lad on the world stage or on the, certainly on the national stage at that point we went unbeaten at home before, until christmas we were touching the european places in february so just a all-round special gentleman and uh Obviously, like you say, we wish him well as he copes with his his illness. But just what a legend, what a man! And he really elevated us to that next level. I, I always echo that sentiment when I talk about Sven. Yeah, John, have you have you worked with him? Have you ever interviewed him? Yeah, yes, I did. Um, before I covered England regularly, as I do now, um, I would step in and interview him occasionally. Um, when you know, I, I would say on quite a number of occasions spoke to him and, you know, he's always utterly charming. You know, that's, that's, that is what you would say about him. Certainly I would like to, to send my best to him as well, if he happens to be tuning into this. But, um, I remember once as well, sitting on a plane, um, we were coming back, I think it was the draw for Euro 2004. We we're certainly coming back from Portugal and, um, we ended up getting upgraded, most unusually, that hardly ever happened to me. Ended up getting upgraded and put in the seat next to Sven Joran Eriksson. So I remember having a, a you know a lovely chat with him on on the plane on the way back when we actually had a bit of time of to to, to talk when when sitting on the plane. So that was a real um, that was a real really fond memory actually. Yeah. He was telling you know at the time because we'd coming back from Lisbon, he was talking about his time at Benfica and how much he loved it there, and and uh, you know how the the Portuguese people. Found about him and if you remember when it came to euro 2004 you know how close england were they were england were probably close to if not the best team at that tournament yeah, and had yeah. it not been for the the, the quarter final wasn't it against portugal um yeah. that uh, that that was such a fine line you know might well might well have uh, have actually won something under sven joran eriksson yeah, when when you think back to his time at City, Adam, it's, it's like I kind of feel sad that it that it all petered out into that eight one defeat at Middlesbrough for him at City because it like he didn't deserve that, did he? From, no, what, he, we, from we, what he brought <laughs> earlier in the season, he didn't deserve it to end that way. Yeah, we've just typical City all over him there, haven't we? Um, it was a glorious season. Uh, and then obviously there was a few weird results when backroom kind of noise was louder than what we were doing on the pitch. I think that took over and it was allowed to take over in a way that it shouldn't have been. Obviously, he was competing with the off-field uh, stories around our owner and what crazy situation that was. So for a, for him to be the ultimate gentleman, even towards the end when we had like our Save Our Sven campaigns and stuff like that, he was dignified uh, right to the end of his tenure at City. So... Uh, we'll, we'll always be thankful for that as well as City fans because he gave us our best days and then, ironically, the big, the biggest loss. And it, but it, it won't blot his copybook, no way. 
Yeah, not in the slightest. Um, we're going to finish this week with uh, a few listener questions. Get in touch on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. You can email us through the website as well. Just go to bluemoonpodcast.com and fill in the form there. Um, Andy on Twitter says, are you worried by how much of the Premier League's case with City is being done in private? Why can't they even tell us the date so we know when to expect an outcome? Um, this is obviously in relation to uh, Richard Masters, the Premier League's chief executive, uh, speaking to MPs on the Culture, Media and Sport Committee this week. Um, I've got a little clip from uh, what he said, so let's have a listen to uh, what Richard Masters said there. If any club, whether the current champions or otherwise, had been found uh, in breach of the spending rules <coughs> for year 23, they would be in exactly the same position uh, as Everton or Nottingham Forest. Um, but the volume and character of the uh, charges laid before Man City, which I obviously cannot talk about at all, are being heard in a completely different uh, environment. Um, um, there is a date set for that um, for that proceeding. I can't, unfortunately, I can't tell you when that is, but that is progressing. Can you give us the? You can't give us the status of the um, Man uh, City and indeed the Chelsea investigations. No, I can't give any details on Man City beyond saying that a date has been set. I can't tell you when that date is. John, is is that a bit odd? I, I think because it's so complicated and uh you know there are obviously the 115 charges and and each one will have to be given all of the due due attention that it needs um i i think not but i mean like you i've i have i have seen it reported that there may be further developments next week um and i'm not sure what but you know we might know a little bit more next week um and you know the fact is I know it's frustrating for Manchester City, part of that frustration being that it is a stick that is being used to beat City, you know, for whatever they do, however successful they are. And it will continue to be until until we reach the point where we uh, where we find out the outcome. Yeah. Adam, for, for yourself, when, when you think about um, the privacy around it, I'm wondering if actually that's a good thing. Because like, if you, if you hear every constant update and detail and detail and detail, I mean, first off, it, it like you'll be weighed down by it week after week after week. But the second, the second thing is that it doesn't give anybody like outside the club anything to latch onto, and like, another thing to have to defend, and another thing to have to talk about here. It's kind of like just wait for the decision, and we'll get a decision. We don't know when it will be. It will be at some yep. point in the future, but there will be a decision. Yeah, there's there's two sides of the coin with the secrecy element of it. Obviously, the benefit of it is that because no little things are being leaked, it doesn't mean that everyone on Twitter or any element of discourse suddenly becomes a finance and legal expert and they know every, the ins and outs of everything. So it stops that. The privacy thing does... The only thing that privacy can do, even though I think it's the right thing to do, it it, it it it's perceptually like masks things because of the secrecy of it. Obviously, it's legally the right thing to do. It can't be washed in, you know, in in the court of public opinion that way. But, but I just it's, it's the, an the, automatic to, conspiracy, it's, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's and you know, football so tribalism anyway. Any perceived wrongdoings from another club all the other clubs are able to jump on it. So that, that's my two kind of pronged look at this. Yes, I'm glad for the privacy because it's the legally correct things to do. I think being in private, it probably just even adds to the air that there's something dodgy going on. Uh, but we just need to be ready for the d- d- decision. Uh, obviously, 
the amount of experts that are out there or perceived experts that think they know what they're talking about when they say, oh, as soon as there's any update in Everton or Forest's cases, it says that they took the first reply on any discourses, but what about City? Well, it's completely different charges. It's like comparing a speeding ticket to a parking ticket. You wouldn't get a parking ticket and say, but what about him speeding? They're dealt with completely different things. It's not sustainability issues that City uh, have been charged with. It's a completely different thing. So to be able to just lump it in in the same conversation is just tiring, but I can't honestly say I wouldn't be doing the same if it was if it was the way around. So I'm not going to criticise <laughs> rival fans too much. And it's, it's because we've been so successful on the back of, on the perceived back of these charges as well. If, we, if it's your United and they're throwing loads of money at it and they're rubbish it's funny but when we're throwing loads of money at things and become successful of it it's a problem because of the way we, we may may or may not have obtained it so I think that's adds to the fuel to the fire as well because we are winning trophies um, on what Pep's built and what the club have built Yeah, uh, John I've seen a few people suggest this week that the Premier League has a bit of an image problem with this because obviously it, you know City could in theory go on and, and, and win the league again this season and you end up in a situation where you know they're presenting medals to a team that they are that they are investigating. Yeah, and um, you know I get, I get the, the the criticism as well, or the or the or the um, the conversations from Newcastle last week about where they are in all of this, and and they feel that they are being severely restricted by the uh, the, the rules as they are at the moment, and that and that they're not able to challenge in the way that they they'd want to, and and then, you know there's a there's a there's a change coming along the way, isn't there? I think that I think there is going to be um, an adjustment to how the the profit and sustainability rules work, and and from what I from what I hear, it's going to be more aligned to the way that UEFA do it, so it'll be based on on wages and and transfers against revenue rather than this. Um, amount you're allowed to lose over a specific period of time so that that change will come but but you know there's something not right and it's not quite right at the moment because of the because of the way that if you're there as manchester city and the other top clubs are if you if you are where you want to be then it's very difficult to to challenge that with the rules as they are at the moment so something something does need to change yeah um, we will uh, follow it as it uh, develops. Um, I'm expecting the news next week will probably just be the time scale, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll kind of see how that goes. We'll cover it on next week's show. Um, we're going to finish this week, though, with Colm on Twitter, who says, uh, very simply, tell us your favourite City games in the snow. Um, <laughs> uh, John, I'm going to widen this out for, for you for just any game Thanks. in the snow, because yeah. obviously it's, uh, it, it's already a narrow criteria, but I'll come to you in a second. Adam, uh, favourite City games in the snow? Yeah, I've got two. There was one uh, away at Arsenal. I think the snow had just cleared, but they painted the lines blue. Um, yes. And they scored that wonderful team goal. Everyone was involved. Actually, about- going back to the start of the show, uh, that's yeah. a wonderful team move, ruined by the fact that Sane scuffs yes, the finish. exactly. Exactly what John said in, in his description <laughs> of a beautiful goal. About 30 crisp, precise passes moving, unlike anything we'd ever seen before. And then it just kind of trickles over the line. So that is a perfect example of the best rubbish rubbish best rubbish goal so uh that arsenal game although the snow had kind of subsided so i'm going to go for a recent game against west ham where the snow came down it was at the etihad i'm at the stadium even i can't see the ball and i've not got to run around to look for it i can sit in my nice seat perched high and even i can't see the ball we kept hold of it for what seemed about 20 minutes you could see the lines in the snow as the ball was traveling between pass to pass so it was like a real life heat map if you will and then uh gundawan just sticks it away at the back post and 
just to have the composure to play in those conditions and to still be able to play your normal game and to control the ball in the way they did. So that just sticks in my memory in terms of a snow-based uh, football match. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to uh, throw in two others. Um, do you remember mm. Fulham at home? Yes, um, where they were cleaning the lines yeah, at halftime. Where yeah. uh, in the in Mancini's title-winning season, what made that one so good is Aguero scored a penalty, uh, and when the ball hit the net, the snow fell off the top of the Love net that. into the into the back of the goal. Love that. Um, and there's some wonderful pictures from City away at West Brom. Uh, under Pellegrini, yeah, it's um, Boxing Day time. Boxing Day, yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And um, they got three 0 up, uh, and then the snow came. And I was glad they were three 0 up when the snow yeah, came because, it, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it just ruined the, uh, the the ability of either team to play football. But there's a, there's some great pictures of it. Um, John, I, I, I through thinking about this actually, I've, I've realised that uh, we don't see the orange ball anymore. They just use the yellow ball, and I'm not sure that's as good. No, I, I agree, and and my memory actually, which and I'm pleased you've widened it out for me, because um, I'm going I'm going back into my youth when I remember uh, uh, I went with a friend of mine to Roker Park. Uh, oh yes. stood, wow. stood on the stood on the stood on the terracing at the Fullwell end and watched Liverpool in the snow and and uh, Liverpool. I think it was, it was probably the first time I'd seen Liverpool, who were so strong at the time, and they were wearing yellow kit with red pinstripes, and uh, and Ian Rush scored one of the goals and I remember seeing him up close for the first time he was absolutely he was like a whippet you know there was nothing on him at all and such a brilliant goal scorer and that match played in the snow and I think I'm right in saying that that was with an orange ball as well yeah yeah, I, uh, I I miss the orange ball because, like, like you, Adam, I can't see the yellow one in the snow. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm glad of it. Um, tell us your favourite games in the snow. Get in touch on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Uh, email us as well. BlueMoonPodcast.com is uh, where you can fill in the form there. Uh, but that brings this week's show to a close. Thank you very much for listening, and thanks also to my guests for this one, Adam Carter. A pleasure. And John Murray. Thanks, David. I'll be back next week to preview that FA Cup trip to Spurs. We might be reminiscing about another FA Cup trip to Spurs. See you then. That was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please give the show a rating and a review where you can. And don't forget, you can listen without the ads by signing up to our Patreon. You'll also get an extra episode each Monday. Here's a clip of this week's. Anybody who grew up in the kind of time frame that we did will always have a soft spot for Joe Royal. And the way that he has spoken about City since is always very nice to hear. But I think Mancini, for all sorts of reasons, he was a very different character to anybody we've probably had before. He was a difficult man, but he did bring what he promised. I'm going to say something that is um, possibly a bit mad here, but I think that Joe Royal and Roberto Mancini are very similar in what they brought to City. They were both kind of, I don't want to say brutal, but they both knew what they wanted and needed and always had a way of getting it done. Yeah. Um, I'd say that Joe Royal did it in a softer way, both with the players and the fans, whereas Mancini was, I'm going to, do this and win at all costs I will alienate any player I need to I will do what is needed Joe Royal is just I think the way he's aged has been uh, lovely and it's always nice to hear him because you don't hear him very often so anything he does say is usually quite nice about that side you can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast and join us again next time for another episode <laughs>